The scientific verdict is unanimous. Human survival depends on a planet rich in other species. Scientists note that more than 7 billion people on this planet depend on the delicate balance of biodiversity to survive. But there's danger ahead. Humanity's life support system is collapsing because of us. Nature is now in more trouble uh, than at any other time in human history. Species are being lost at a rate tens or even hundreds of times faster than in the past. And uniquely rich ecosystems like the rainforest of Brazil are particularly at risk. Brazilian officials have told the BBC that there's been an aggressive increase in deforestation since the election of President Bolsonaro in January. It's urgent then to document our current biodiversity and mobilize the public to protect it. My name is Catherine Rehimaki, and my guest today has spent her career capturing the public's imagination about human interactions with the natural world. Katie Carpenter is an environmental filmmaker. Her releases include films like Ocean Warriors, Battle for the Elephants, and A Year on Earth. Katie, welcome to All for Earth. Thank you so much. Let's start with uh, a description of the types of films you produce. Are there any common themes beyond the fact that they're about the environment? Uh, I have I, – I started being just kind of a general interest reporter. I did cultural films. I did history films. And the first time I was recruited to do a series about environmental issues, it was called Race to Save the Planet quite a few years ago now. And they only hired producers who had zero science or environmental experience. That was the rule. <laughs> they said the science and environmental reporters have not handled this story well. Not enough people care. We need all these other people to come and do this story. So I fell into it really without any background whatsoever. And at the end of two years of filming in Brazil and India and going to the World Bank meeting in Berlin and seeing people screaming and yelling about environmental issues, I realized that I couldn't go back and just do, you know, like child figure skaters. It just <laughs> wasn't going to be for me. So No offense that, to figure skaters. <laughs> no, I mean, I love to watch them, but I don't want to, you know, you spend a year making a film, it runs on National Geographic Channel for an hour, and then it's gone, poof. And if you're going to put that much effort and money into something, I feel like it needs to have a little bit more impact or at least be talking about something that people really need to know about. So I started with wildlife films. Um, from there, I went to toxic water. <laughs> from there, I went to very endangered species in places like Cambodia and Indonesia, which really have difficult other issues, too, that need to be looked at. And, um, you know, I think by the time we got to Ocean Warriors, we realized that we were dealing with kind of a life-or-death situation. So the films have gotten... Um, more serious, but at the same time, the world of media has pulled us toward more adventure, more adrenaline. So they're both more serious and more, what's the word, frivolous at the same time. <laughs> and, these two, and these two things are kind of com uh, impacting each other in, in negative ways, I would say. That's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious, given that you come from a different background than I do. Um, so, you know, I'm a, a scientist, so I come from a more technical background. Um, whether you view um, your role partly as historical documentation, are you looking at? Um, I, I guess the question is whether the how, how much the story dominates and the storytelling dominates, and you know whether that gets in the way of the scientific reality in the favor of the story that you're trying to tell? We try very hard to prioritize the science and the scientists over the story and over the other, you know, 
interesting fringe elements that might be going on at the same time. It is hard if you're working for cable television to keep the story as serious as it needs to be. Um, But it's also true that we get uh, pretty good information, pretty good data from researchers who tell us scientists are not being well portrayed on television. Here's why. What can you do about it? And then we're enlisted in the cause of getting science to the public through ways that they may not otherwise be able to access or or even want to access. So we need them to be more personal. We need them to be more relaxed. We need them to, you know, go outside, to take off their lab coats, to to make to reduce the wall between them and the public a little bit so that the public can can consume the science more easily, more readily. I mean, there's a climate scientist named Catherine Hayhoe. I don't know if you know who she is. <laughs> yeah, Everybody points to her. But, you know, she she's done really well and she's been a model for other scientists to, you know, just like drop the the heavy glasses and the and the starchy lab coat and just tell us what you're doing, why you're doing it and how interesting it is. That's interesting. Is, is it the um challenge for the scientists, which is sort of how you're presenting this, or is it the filmmakers who haven't escaped the tropes that they've been sort of trapped in? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's both. And I think uh, now we've been called upon, both you guys and us guys, to <laughs> make it teamwork and spend more time with your scientists. You know, when I first went to work at the Discovery Channel, we would grab a camera crew, go to the lab, shoot an interview for an hour with somebody we'd never met and often never spoken to, um, leave the lab. When you get back, it seems kind of wooden, and it doesn't end up getting that much airtime. Now, you know, we spend a lot of time on the phone beforehand. We go, we spend a couple days before we shoot. We don't sit in the lab anymore, chair to chair. We walk around. We go to the study site. We try to make it feel a little bit more granular and interesting. And I think, um, you know, we and we just have to keep testing. We have to try new things and we have to keep testing and seeing what breaks through. Yeah. You, you mentioned the frivolous aspect of this. And, um, you know, where where do you see that coming out and does that – differ depending on who the the channel is or who the audience you're imagining is? Yes, I think that, um, I mean, we can name names here. We're among friends. <laughs> I think that my experience working at National Geographic was a lot more substantial than, uh, for example, when I ended up at Animal Planet on Ocean Warriors. National Geographic will sit down. They'll bring a couple of scientists in and these folks they call National Geographic Explorers who are often photographers who've been all over the world. And you'll sit around a room for like all day long and you'll do a beat sheet on your show. Oh, yeah, we're going to do elephant poaching and the illegal ivory trade. Where do we need to go? Who do we need to talk to? And you put it out on a on a large whiteboard and you erase it many times and write it over again. And it just seems like it's had some brain power applied to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really find that at Animal Planet. And I think it's safe to say now because they've revealed themselves to be all pit bull. <laughs> and they've given up on elephants and, and marine mammals altogether. So I think that's where they're going. That's fine. Now we know that that's not where we go and that's not where we take our scientists. We're going to be better off if we develop an idea for a show, connect with the scientists, make it really good, whether it's in Nat Geo or out on the street somewhere, take the big idea to a network that's going to appreciate it. And increasingly that's a, you know, that's an, an HBO or a Showtime or you know, Netflix, not the usual bear. 
Are, are you in a position where you have that luxury to kind of shop around or are filmmakers sort of in this uh, dire industry where you have to take whatever um, sponsors you can get? It's fine. We have to shop around. Yeah. There are there are no like actual filmmakers on staff anywhere anymore. It's mainly just program executives at these cable channels. And then the independents come in, you know, every hour on the hour and pitch their ideas. And I would say the last maybe half dozen films that I worked on um were commissioned that way. I did a I did a show for uh, that was paid for by NBC and produced by MSNBC called Future Earth, which was about endangered species, and we shot all around the world for you know did a two hour show with Jeff Corwin as the host, and it had a big bu- budget and a and a lot of um, firepower to it in terms of scientists and real location situations with endangered species. And that's really the last time I worked inside a network and a network paid for that kind of show. Now it's like pulling teeth. You know, you got (laughs) to run all over town. I mean, I'm going to L.A. next week with a new show, and it's going to CNN Studios, Discovery Studios, Netflix, and places I've never even heard of, like Quibi, maybe you've heard of. Mm -mm. Quibi was founded by Meg Whitman and... Her colleagues. So, it, I mean, there's new networks coming up all the time, thank goodness, because they're not hardened to this idea to, you know, that you can't put serious environmental issues on the air. You can. You just have to find more interesting ways to talk about them. So I'm curious about that. Um, you know, in addition to you being an environmental filmmaker, um, you were also executive director of a program called the Evidence-Based Science Communication Initiative at the law school at Yale University. Um, are there particular techniques that you use in your communication that um, engages the audience and builds empathy for the environment or for specifically endangered animals that you're dealing with? Well, that's a great question. And what uh, we try to do here at the in the lab at Yale is we try to look for shows that can that cover individual topics in different ways. For example, we we did a study and, and we looked at four different evolution programs. We know there's a lot of polarization in this country around evolution. Mm-hmm. We took clips from these four shows. We ran them in a large sample size um, study, 5,000 people, and then asked them questions not about the shows afterwards but really science literacy questions just to see did they have their interest level um, stimulated by these programs. And it was really interesting to see the difference. And in fact, Dan Kahan, who is the the leader of this project, who teaches at the law school and is also a psychologist, um, he felt that this study was important because it not only told us a little bit about how to produce shows differently, but it also taught us something interesting uh, that was above that, that if you have something called science curiosity, that this curiosity can serve as an antidote to political polarization. And if you, and if you apply this, um, I mean, it can basically inoculate a viewer against the knee-jerk reaction they might otherwise have at the beginning of a program. Oh, this is going to be about evolution. I, I don't want to watch this. These are those crazy liberals making TV shows about things that we all know the truth about. <laughs> and, uh, and so Dan, Dan developed this great theory from that. He did subsequent studies. 
He's created something called the Science Curiosity Scale so we can better understand who has it, how you can trigger it, whether it can can help us all. So the difference between the show that kind of won out in that test and the other shows is that it started with a kind of a long, meandering, very congenial and engaging story that didn't seem to be about evolution at all. It was a great story about a vervet monkey. You you know, it fades up from black and this monkey's in his cage and he's hitting the bar, the red bar, the green bar, trying to get the food. But he can't figure out how it works. Like the food seems to be coming randomly. You can tell he's confused and he's frustrated. And then – fade to black, come back up. It's the following morning. The scientists have taken that monkey, they've given him brain surgery, and they've turned on his color vision because he was colorblind. Mm-hmm. Ah. So then they put the monkey back in the cage and he's hitting the green bar, hitting the green bar, he's getting the food and he's happy. So then they go into a discussion of, well, you know, which animals have color vision and which ones gave it up in order to get something else like a stronger sense of smell? Oh, dogs got a smaller – you know, it just led into, well, who has sense of smell and who has better eyesight and who has better hearing and, um, and how that happened over time. So by minute like nine, when they first say the word evolution, the whole group is there. And we found in in the testing afterwards that uh, the the people who were self-reported Republicans, they stayed with the show. When asked did they want to see the rest of the show, they clicked yes. And even did they want to receive the whole series, you know, by uh, online to watch later, they said yes. And uh, this didn't happen with any of the other shows. So Dan helped us develop um, a series. These are this is guidance. These are not rules that anybody's going <laughs> to sure. accept. But the guidance was, don't be putting these polarizing teases at the top of your shows. Every show has one. 90 seconds. We're going to tell you why the fight about evolution is happening. You know, don't even say it. Just go right into the show, tell a story, introduce some interesting characters, and then you'll see more people will come along. So what does that look like for environmental films? Are there examples of sort of how you lure the audience in that doesn't make it polarizing? Well, I can tell you that um, we we edited two versions of Ocean Warriors. That's a six-hour series. Um, the, the series that aired on Animal Planet has a polarizing tease at the top, a lot of fast-cutting, people yelling at each other and boats <laughs> exploding, things like that. Um, the other version, which uh, Vulcan paid for and which was distributed internationally and educationally, that version didn't have any teases at the top. And it, it, it sure, you know, boats rushed by and people said exciting things, but it didn't have to like tell the viewer from the outset, oh, you're going to, you're going to find out there's good guys and bad guys in the world and these bad things are happening and they're all your fault. So we had the opportunity to look at these two series and say, well, look at that, you know, television should really go this way. But so far, ratings and advertising goes toward the multiple explosions in the first 30 seconds. You know, like they always used to say, if it bleeds, it leads. (laughs) And bang, bang, still starts a documentary. Have you gotten other feedback on those two versions and sort of comparing their effectiveness? Um, that study is not finished, okay. but I, you know, anecdotally, yes. Um, everybody, even, you know, people on the other side of the political aisle, 
appreciate a show that will take you through some stories and some interesting characters to arrive at a presentation of information. Who wouldn't want that? So we're wrong to assume, you know, the audience of Discovery Channel has recently been revealed to be like these crazy truck driving guys from the the commercial that they've recently put out advertising the uh, the false slate. And you see guys that are like, oh, they're punching each other and they're knocking over animals and they're driving pickup trucks back and forth across the screen. Yeah. Really? I mean, that may get you ratings, but the audience you're getting is not going to buy your product. So why don't you rethink that? Yeah, interesting. One of the things that I've noticed for your projects, it seems to be that there's a um, human community that's involved, right? Ocean Warriors has people involved. It's not just about the animals. And is that a deliberate um, attempt to create a storyline that humans can relate to? Yes, very much so. And um, good perception. Our our shows, my partners and I have always made shows that uh, include uh, human-animal interaction to a very high degree. And, and I taught film uh, this past summer to Princeton students who were studying in Kenya. And we, we went through kind of the history of wildlife documentary making. And we started with the, the, uh, the early David Attenborough shows and then Planet Earth mm-hmm. and now this new one, Our Planet. And then we compared that to some of the other shows that Nat Geo and, and we had made, Discovery had made, and PBS had made. And um, when you have humans in the picture, it might not be as gorgeous a close-up shot of the snow leopard across on the opposite hill. Right. But it does bring it closer to home that this animal and we inhabit the same place. And we both need to stay there and we need to find a way to make that possible. So putting humans into your into your film, um, again, it was kind of a ratings thing for many years. But now, now that's all changing. And I have to give credit to the filmmakers over the last maybe eight to ten years who've brought really interesting uh, human characters to the screen in environmental films like The Cove mm-hmm. and Racing Extinction. And uh, Blackfish. Right. These are films that really should be looked at again. I mean, if you if you focus on what's really happening in those films, there's a lot of thoughtful, you know, Hollywood executives and storytellers and screenwriters have nothing on what these people went through to make their story sharp and compelling and compassionate. And I think um, – so we've benefited. They kind of broke the ice on that. And now when we did our investigative film, uh, Warlords of Ivory, after finishing Battle for the Elephants, and we decided to um, create a, a situation in which, in which our investigator was planting transmitters and batteries and antennas inside fake elephant tusks, and then we were putting them out into the supply chain and watching via satellite where those tusks were going and how they were traveling up out of the Congo and across Sudan and over to Mombasa into a container ship and off to China to, so, to, to show, you know, once and for all how that was happening. Well, we had elephants in there and humans in there and they both had very high stakes and they were kind of fighting for each other, you know. So I feel like um, there's just so many new ways we could do this. And if we were given a little bit more opportunity to experiment, I think we would. 
Can we talk a little bit more about the course that you just led? Um, so you were um, teaching a documentary filmmaking class in Kenya, and it was a handful of Princeton students, some students from Nairobi. Um, what was that experience like, and why is teaching an important part of your work portfolio? I am... I just have to say I'm humbled and grateful by the whole experience. I think it's very cool that that courses like this even happen. Um, it shows a lot of uh, insights to to even attempt this. First of all, you take the students out of the U.S. where they're digitally distracted and you put them in a place where there's no Wi-Fi. That was kind of incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and you challenge them to think about – uh, you know, what do you watch? What do you consume? Is it short? Is it long? Is it comedic? Is it, you know, romance? Like, like what are you consuming and how can you take what you consume and apply it to this issue, which you also know, but in a separate part of your brain, that it's really important. So we spent the first couple of weeks of the class doing lectures like any ordinary film course would be. We showed clips and we talked about different approaches to wildlife and uh, environmental filmmaking and also a lot about climate change. And then we set the students loose, first to do short pieces and then to do longer films in teams. Every team had a Kenyan, so they had the perspective of the local uh, filmmaker too. Mm -hmm. And they went off and they made really hard films, challenging films. I was impressed. I mean, there were easier films to do. Oh, let's do this film about this elephant that's down on the river that's been shot and needs, you know, veterinary care. That's a good story. That talks about poaching. But we're past that now. We are in a real crisis all over Africa, you know, what they call human-wildlife conflict, and it's just about running out of land. So these students found places and ways to tell those stories, and the films they made, I mean, seriously, you would weep. We're going to, when they're all finished, we're going to post them. And I think um, people will be surprised what an uninitiated documentary filmmaker can do, given a little bit of brain space, a powerful issue, and all the tools that they bring with them since they've been making videos since they were like nine Right. I I was um, poking around on YouTube for some of the videos that I think have been posted already. And, um, you know, I was really struck by the fact that they're in a place where there are lions and giraffes and really charismatic <laughs> megafauna. And um, one of the videos was about insects. And mm. another one was about the um, ranger that keeps people safe at the research station from some of the large charismatic megafauna. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe that just illustrates your point that they're finding kind of the surprising stories and not the easy ones that are maybe a little trite at this point. Yeah. Well, you know, that that film about the ranger is interesting because the powerful um, point that is almost forgotten and only comes out at the end is that rhino that you see in the picture with the wildlife fat is one of the last two northern white rhinos in the world. Hmm. And those two are both there. And guess what? They're both females. Hmm. So that's a hardcore story. Right. But they didn't make their whole story about that. They ended up making their story about two really interesting characters, a ranger and a vet. And this little fact slips out at the end, and I think it leaves people gasping. I think they really did a good job. It was, it was subtle yet powerful. Yeah, right. I, are there um, 
of implications for kind of the the way that the students maybe approach understanding the environment at the beginning of the class versus where they end? Are there implications for kind of misconceptions that maybe the public has about the environment or about environmental issues? Yes, uh, yes. I think um, one of the problems, it was really funny, I was interviewed for a New York Times article last week covering uh, that the headline was, how come Hollywood doesn't care about climate change? <laughs> and she, the reporter had talked to a lot of different people, and the consensus seemed to be that, well, there, were, there are two problems. One is climate change is too big, too far away, and too um, not proximate to where you are, like it's not at my door. Right. Uh, to really make people care about it yet. So um, that causes Hollywood writers to think we can't cover it. It's also extremely divisive, as we know. And rather than try to figure out ways to cover it and bring people together, they just pretty much ignore it. But also, there's kind of like a backlash problem that's happening, which is that the villains, environmentalists make really good villains. <laughs> Screenwriters <laughs> really? have come. No. Screen, screenwriters have come to see them as great villains. They don't want you to drink out of plastic straws. They don't want you to drive your car. They, you know, they're trying to always tell you what to do. They're scolds, and um, so you know, it's it's almost like environmentalism and filmed entertainment are at a loggerheads here. And we need to find a way to build bridges, just as we've been working to build bridges between producers and scientists. We need to to build bridges between, you know, entertainment writers and this whole concept of climate and conservation. It was um, the very first assignment I gave the students in June was – Read this press release from the UN about the global assessment recently released that says, uh, you know, a thousand new species are going to go extinct by the end of the century. This was a huge news flash. And in our world and in the world of scientists, it made – it just made a very loud explosive sound. Oh, my gosh, this is happening. And yet, by two days later, it was absolutely gone. It took less than even one news cycle for it to disappear. Nobody really wrote anything powerful about it. Um, it was a little blip. It's embarrassing. I mean, you know, Fox News covered it by saying, oh, yeah, they say these, all these animals are going extinct, and it's our fault. <laughs> and they made it about who portrayed who as being to blame instead of saying, you know, let's focus. Let's listen up. Let's do something. And um, so we gave the students uh, the, basically the press release and three related articles and some tweets and a few posts. And we said, how can you make this turn out differently? And uh, it was great what they came up with. I mean, one came up with a music video. Another one came up with a, um, a feature film script, which was really pretty impressive. Um, I mean, they all had different ways to do it, but they focused on individual stories and individual animals. They did it almost instinctively. If you look at the UN press release, there's not a single name of an animal in there. They don't say rhinos are going to be extinct. They just say 0.3.2 something something. It's just, you know, it's a wall, wall of numbers, wall of stats. So these students really pulled the story out of it, and I think they did a good job. Yeah, I I think my favorite um, news story about that uh, – 
press release, um, and I think it's one million species that are, are slated oh, to go extinct, yeah, not good, a thousand. Um, but the uh, they they sort of gave the overview, and then they said, you know, here are some species that are threatened and they sort of the the stinger was vultures and you know you may not you may not be concerned about vultures but in fact they're a critical part of our um, food chain and our ecosystems and half of the species are are threatened and that's that's a real problem so that's so true and I did hear somebody say and this is why the numbers got messed up that 90 percent of those you know deemed to go extinct by that time period, are insects, yeah. as if that was, right. oh, well, therefore, we don't need to worry. Right. Let's not just discount insects. They're keeping the planet afloat at the moment. Uh, you know, we need to pay attention to all the creatures that are here and better understand how they play a role in this very intricate web that is literally keeping us alive. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great sentiment to end on. Um, this has been just a, a fascinating conversation. So, Katie, thanks so much for, for joining us. And I wish you all the best of luck with all of your endeavors. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Katie Carpenter is a filmmaker and environmental communicator. Her most recent film project is Protect Your Water at protectyourwater.com. Please also check out her film Chasing the Thunder, a documentary about a fishing vessel that was illegally fishing in waters around the world. Finally, you can learn more about her work on the science of effective communication at culturalcognition.net. Please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.